When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Building Better Business podcast is the best place to learn how to take your business to the next level. It's no longer enough to earn good profits. You need to develop a network of connections as well as use all types of marketing to your advantage that will put you over the edge. Hosted by me, Steve Eschbach, a financial executive with decades of experience in dealing with businesses and business people, we'll learn how this all comes together. Join me and my expert guests as we delve into the many facets of owning the business and how to become a good, caring business owner. Listen how making a difference in your community can attract all sorts of clientele, which in turn will build you a better business. Good morning, everyone. Hello, this is Steve Eschbach. I'm president of Transworld Business Advisors of Naperville, and I'm delighted to have Steve Carr, who um, is a uh, investor relations professional in and of himself, and he's also a lawyer, and he's also part of the Transworld team. So first of all, Steve, thank you so much for agreeing to participate on this uh, this interview for purposes of the book and podcast. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, great. So you and I have known each other for many, many years, probably about a dozen years so far, but we're going to rewind the videotape here. We're going to figure out who Steve Carr is and how he came to be. So tell me a little bit about uh, your upbringing. Where'd you grow up? You know, I grew up in a small farming town in uh, northern Illinois, and, uh, you know, the gig, I was the first person in my whole family to really go to college, and the thing about these areas, rural areas, which are still a big part of the country, and of course, right now, the first ones to open up from pandemic lockdowns, you know, the gig economy is nothing new there, because even though my family enjoyed the lifestyle of farming and and we moved to a small town early on people are often work two or three jobs to support their uh, farm life Mm -hmm. i mean uh, the the, by the by the time even when even when i was young farming was very hard to be a sole subsistence job and people worked in factories and sales or you know a spouse would be a nurse so the gig economy is not as new as a lot of us think it is that's honestly how farmers survived for many decades. It's interesting you mentioned that comment. One of our Transworld business advisor franchisee owners is actually a farmer by upbringing as well, and he does that along the side of running his business intermediary operation. So that's great. So what was your childhood like? What did you like to do back then? Well, you know, I always liked to read probably because, again, this was pre-internet, pre-email, and really even pre-cable TV. So uh, life in a small town could be pretty dull. Rockford, Illinois, uh, which was a large industrial town of about 100,000, was really where we went to, you know, find the only open bookstore. I mean, there were no Barnes and Nobles, no uh, Borders, uh, no Kindles online. So, um, you know, my parents were very supportive of education and higher education and, uh, we spent a lot of time in, in that larger city for um, entertainment and education purposes. And uh, I think everybody did the best they could to be supportive. Uh, my graduating high school class was 12 kids. 
um, most of whom did go on to college. Um, and uh, I migrated to the Chicago area for school. And, uh, you know, like you, uh, I mean, you've been around the country from, you know, Connecticut and other areas to the Chicago area for job purposes. But, you know, really to find white collar employment and get education, uh, you, you had to leave the rural areas and, and go to a bigger urban area. And uh, that's what I did. And Chicago has been good to us. Uh, I met my wife here. We've had our kids here. They've been to school around here. And uh, Chicago has always had enough employment opportunities and cultural opportunities that uh, it's been a good, um, a good move and never really had a reason to leave. Although, obviously, as you know, in, in recent years, state funding and pension, pension issues and the business climate is taking a big turn for the worse. Sure. So, I, honestly, I find it kind of hard to encourage my kids to stay here, to tell you the truth, which is uh, kind of difficult. We all like Illinois, but uh, it's not a great economic climate when you compare it to Florida, Texas, or you know, a lot of other markets. But we survive, right? It is, and, and for purposes, uh, we will, for purposes of, um, you know, the topic today of buying and selling businesses, I, I, th- I think the good news is that uh, there, there will be a lot more businesses to sale. It seems like uh, three-quarters of the people in, uh, we know in our group of friends have migrated to Florida or North Carolina or someplace similar from the, you know, north suburban Chicago areas. That said... There are going to be a lot of businesses for sale, but we may struggle with the asking prices, uh, you know, precisely because I think people will expect, may expect a bargain. Right. And also the sellers may be perhaps a little more motivated to sell so that they can, uh, so they can leave. Well, only time will tell. Hey, before we move on to where you are today, um, you talked about you growing up in a farming uh, family. So were your parents primarily farmers or you mentioned that they did other things as well. So if they weren't yeah. doing farming, what else did they do? Really kind of 50, 50. We did farming and uh, my grandparents and uncles were all in farming. My dad moved uh, and migrated more to industrial sales uh, and only helped out on the farms part time. And my mom really only went back to work. She was uh, what they then called a stay at home homemaker. But when I uh, moved to college, she did go back to work off and on to help uh, help the family out, and uh, you know, and and then uh, you know, dropped out of the workforce again when it became feasible. Sure, absolutely. So we know that you are a business intermediary with me at Transboro Business Advisors, but there were a couple of stops along the way. So our audience doesn't know this, but you do have a legal degree, but you also worked in investor relations in a number of different firms. So. Why don't we talk a little bit about the IR component and then get into the legal and then we'll talk more about the business brokerage. So tell me about your investor relations background and how that all came to be. Well, investor relations is very similar to uh, public relations and public affairs. I think what's mainly different is the audience. I mean, in public relations, you know, uh, the practitioners really can focus on the general public or industrial buying public or any public. Investor relations is a management discipline that really combines uh, a couple of disciplines, really. I mean, communications, you need to be a good communicator. Finance, you need to be, uh, you know, able to uh, understand uh, a a balance sheet, 
an, an income statement and uh, explain the finances of a company you work for or the clients you represent. And, um, you know, it's, uh, and, and then I think also um, you need to be able to um, focus on, uh, you know, the key strengths of, uh, of an organization, be able to explain that. It's aimed at a different audience, really, investors and corporate management, big hedge funds, uh, small hedge funds, uh, private equity firms, uh, be able to focus on the strengths and accommodate the weaknesses of the organizations you're, you're trying to represent. The goal really is to uh, achieve the maximum sustainable uh, share price of a publicly held company or to help a privately held company go public. Uh, or to you know perhaps buy and sell a company in public relations, the aim is typically more to deal with a crisis or, or to sell products and services uh, and deal with the publics that would determine the future of that audience. So I think those disciplines are very similar, but what 's different is really the audience uh, in public affairs, the audience is really going to be a legislative audience or voters you know, Congress, regulators, uh, people who are going to influence um, legislation and regulations. So uh, that, that's just kind of the world we live in. So I got to believe you, like me, when you were a young, young boy riding your bike around the neighborhood, I can imagine, or I imagine that you, like me, did not have an investor relations career mindset back then. So you didn't tell your friend, I'm going to be an investor relations executive, or I'm going to be involved in mergers and acquisitions and advise accordingly. Same thing when you graduated from college. I'm sure you didn't have that in mind. How did you kind of get your way into the uh, investor relations field? Did that come by choice? Did that come by happenstance? What, what can you tell me about You know, that? it's interesting. I was actually an English major and, uh, I wanted to be a great American novelist. So a career in business was not really something I was looking for, but um, uh, to support myself after school, I made a living in journalism for some years. And uh, I, I was recruited by a major public, public relations agency, Daniel J. Edelman, uh, because uh, they kind of really, PR really represents the other, it works on the other side of the desk from journalism. And they figured if I was a good journalist, I could write, talk, and understand a good story and a good headline. So uh, I was recruited to uh, work on the other side of the desk. And like a lot of people, uh, did well in the field, uh, made some money, so I stayed in it. Uh, and as time went on, I became a, a business rainmaker, uh, bringing in clients and helping bring in clients as part of a team for the agencies I worked for. So probably like a lot of writers and journalists or a lot of people, I was an introvert who became an extrovert uh, really to deal with clients and survive in the business world and the business development world. And uh, interestingly, I've seen the same thing with uh, one of my kids. My daughter um, was a history major, uh, always a good communicator, uh, but you know she was always a little shy and kind of an introvert. But um, as time went on, when she graduated, she worked for a few years in public relations. She got a master's degree, did some teaching, wound up in training, which is a great career. There's tons of training jobs because so much of our training now is online as well as in person. Um, and over time, she graduated from being kind of a person who liked to, she still likes to write and communicate, but 
to deal with clients and to train, she had to become an extrovert. So I, I think a lot of people go through that transition. I don't know about you. You're a CFA. You obviously dealt with numbers and so forth. But, um, you know, over, over time, we have to become more other-oriented if we really plan to if we grow our careers. I totally agree with you. And uh, I think over time, you and I have both realized that uh, – you can't be a subject matter expert in everything, but if yeah. you are connected with those that are subject matter experts in areas that you are not, that is an excellent way to get one plus one to equal three. So there is a ESQ at the end of your name, so you have a legal degree, and I'm wondering how that kind of got into where you were and where you are today. Why did you, A, get a legal degree? We'll talk more about how important the legal profession helps business uh, mergers and acquisitions. But how did Steve Carr say, you know what, I think I want to get a, a degree in law. And how did that come about? And how have you applied it? You know, at the, at the time, I was uh, enjoying a 10-year stint with Burson Marsteller, a major international agency. And there was a big trend at the time for people to go back to school and get MBAs. And uh, um, in fact, my wife did that at this literally at about the same time. But to me, well, first of all, I was more conversant with words than numbers, and uh, it seemed to me that law undergirds almost everything we do, whether it's an international business or business, mergers and acquisitions, crisis work. Uh, I've done a lot of regulatory work and spent a lot of time in government hearing rooms, and uh, you know, I, I was just more interested uh, in, in law and um, you need to be a good communicator in the legal world. You need to be able to stand on your feet, think on your feet, speak, write. Uh, although I, I know the lawyers have a terrible reputation for being writers because of all the jargon. But uh, law, law interested me more. And, you know, I never really practiced. When I got into it, I realized that to really be a practicing lawyer, I would need to go back and start my career all over again doing research in a law library. Well, by the time I'd been in business for 10 years, that had very little appeal. And it got back to being the introvert idea. You would then have to go back from being the extrovert dealing with clients, which I really enjoyed, to uh, basically spending a lot of your time with online research in Nexus Lexus or uh, with, with the law books and writing briefs behind the scenes. And that didn't really interest me. Although, to be true, Fair, let's face it, you and I at Transworld and uh, PR and IR advisors, you basically are behind the scenes a lot. I mean, your job is to make your client look good, not necessarily to uh, promote yourself. You know, it's interesting with that comment. Um, and I would argue that having a law degree or having at least a legal background is critically essential to court communications, M&A transactions, because the careful selection of words is critical to effectively communicate your messaging for PRIR, effective in M&A deals, because words are critically important. So it must have helped you along the way, especially in investor relations. You were involved in probably a ton of uh, M&A transactions before getting into Transworld. So I'm sure it's benefited you along the way, no doubt. Well, one thing uh, the legal background does for you, uh, other than understanding 
contracts very well and the nitty gritty of, of legal documents. You know, I think a law degree, and I don't want to denigrate MBAs or other similar degrees, I think they all do the same thing. They give you a backdrop of credibility that's very helpful in your career. And I, and I found that to be true of law for a lot of the issues and deals, as you say, deal making, crisis work, uh, and also you're dealing with a lot of lawyers. Right. So, you know, the lawyers who advise, are advising the clients on um, buying and selling their businesses or contracts or issues they may be dealing with or takeover fights for big publicly held companies, the fact that you're, you may be a JD uh, or for that matter a CFA gives you a lot of credibility in terms of just working with the legal team. They, I think, start to feel comfortable very quickly oh, okay, this guy understands the importance of transparency, of of confidentiality. He understands what we're doing when we work in these documents or why why we're taking certain actions. You know, I've even helped, you know, the lawyers draft many documents that, uh, you know, went out to various groups and uh, and various issues. I mean, I've helped law firms draft... uh, Letters that went to the unions during strike negotiations, for example, that went out to the union employees. So, you know, it's definitely been helpful in that regard. So I think credibility and transparency are still not just corporate buzzwords, but, you know, really are very helpful in today's business world. Absolutely. So what do you like best about what you do professionally? You know, I I think, you know, it's still the client relations. I mean, that's... uh, you know, every client is different. You know, they all have their goals and, you know, their personalities and, um, you know, the factors that are driving them to do whatever they're, they're trying to do in, in the business world. And uh, so I think client relations and, uh, you know, trying to help uh, the, the client succeed is uh, just, you know, still, still my big motivating factor for sure. It's critically important. I think client relationship is uh, is key to what we do. So, what was your highest professional moment? Did you ever hit uh, seventy five home runs in a year, or strike out two hundred batters in a year? What was your highest professional moment? Well, you know, I, I mean, definitely going back some years, I, I had the very interesting experience of dealing with um, an airline crash with ValueJet Airways, which. Uh, had a pretty terrible crash in the Everglades um, in the late 1990s, uh, and I was later later hired to help represent uh, ValueJet uh, in public relations and investor relations after the crash, and um, it, it really kind of forced me to use all my skills: law, IR, PR. But uh, what was striking about ValueJet was uh, that the airline's board actually wanted to reopen for business. Uh, under the old name, ValueJet, which uh, they all loved and was a great brand name. It truthfully was the pioneer even before Southwest for the low fare uh, airline category. Uh, Unfortunately, after the crash, it it really tarnished the entire business category. People thought, gee, is it really safe to fly these, um, you know, cheap uh, low fare airlines? Maybe not, Uh, even though the reason for the crash – ultimately turned out to be a uh, major flaw on behalf of a supplier, which had improperly stored some um, oxygen canisters. Uh, And the airline was really vindicated. But, 
you know, unfortunately at a tragic cost. So I think what airline crashes are a multi-year, multi-audience issue. They take about five years, maybe longer in some cases, to really resolve. So it was quite a struggle in terms of dealing with, uh, you know, investors, regulators, uh, audiences of, of all stripes, the flying public. And ultimately, the airline rebranded as AirTran, uh, which I helped implement and was later purchased by Southwest Airlines. Uh, so it was a big, successful turnaround. But one thing I think you really see in those situations is reestablishing credibility is very important. Transparency is very important. We never tried to hide the fact that we were value jet and that the crash had happened. Uh, we instead focused on all the improvements management has made uh, with brand new airplanes, uh, new management team, safety improvements. Uh, all the things you really have to do that companies today do to fix a problem when they have a problem. And it, uh, it really reinforced, again, credibility, transparency, fix the problem, be honest with the public about what the problem was, what you're doing. And, um, you know, that, that's the only way to recover from any kind of major issue. And that did take some time, correct? Five years. Five years, yeah. That's Five it. years. And unfortunately, a lot of people thought the airline was really a black hat. You know, there was really a lot of anger and resentment. That's uh, a lot to overcome. At, aimed at the air. Yeah. It was more than just uh, disappointment with, uh, I, I think we're all disappointed sometimes with the way a lot of products and services perform. And a good company handles refunds well and, and is, you know, sympathetic to uh, customer complaints. You know, you're better to try and help a customer uh, resolve the issue and take a complaint and return, accept a return and, you know, move on and keep the customer. But uh, that, that can be a hard lesson for a lot of companies to learn. Yes. One thing that's always struck me is that the, um, uh, now that it's spring, the weather's better. We're all spending more time uh, safe distancing at the uh, garden shops and, you know, uh, floral shops and uh, places like that. You know, places like Lowe's and uh, Menards and so forth, Home Depot, always have very liberal return policies because if you're anything like me, uh, I'm always going in to buy something and then finding out I bought the wrong size mm -hmm. or I didn't really want that product or want something different. I have, I'm always running back. Any, any home fix-it job seems to take about three trips to the store to really get it fixed. And I think they realized early on they had to be pretty liberal in their policies uh, or they were going to alienate a lot of customers. Uh, right. I think they've been pretty smart in that regard. And I think, you know, I found that Amazon does a great job. Oh, my gosh, we're constantly shipping things back to Amazon. And they yep. made it so easy just dropping a product back at UPS with a return label. Absolutely. Um, I really appreciate it. So, Steve, it sounds like you've learned a lot along the way, and based on your learning experiences, you've adapted your professional career. Is there anything, as you look back, any different type of advice you would have given yourself, let's see, from right after college to where you are today? Is there anything else you would have advised yourself accordingly? You know, I probably would have stuck with some jobs longer than I did, and uh, given them a chance to really see how they'd pay out in the, in the 70s, 80s, and to an extent the 90s, despite some pretty severe recessions, 
in the early to mid 70s and you know early to mid 80s I kind of wish I'd given some places a little longer career run than I actually did and I think you know younger people today if they're not self-employed I think maybe you're you know, giving their places of work a little more thread to run out than you know maybe a lot of us did back then there, there was just a lot of temptation to make a quicker hit and uh, ju- jump for some more money and a promotion. And uh, I kind of wish I'd given a couple of places a little longer run, in all honesty. Yeah, you and I can share the same story. So a uh, couple things before we kind of call this a, a day, but um, we're going to talk a little bit about business brokerage now. So now you're, you're taking your investor relations, your M&A background, and now you're kind of working at Transworld. Some of this is in your book, and I want you to mention your book. It was just released. I just read it. Great read. Talks about uh, brand wins, how reputation is critical in this digital age. Tell me a little bit about the book, why you wrote the book, and how you think it's applicable today to what you're doing in the M&A arena with Transworld. Well, Steve, thank you. As you noted, I've been an advisor for many years on transactions, large as small, whether it's initial public offerings or companies buying and selling themselves. And with Transworld, you, you kind of have the opportunity to be more of a, you're a business broker, you're, you're really functioning in an investment banking type role and a facilitator. So you're really more in the mainstream of things. And, uh, you know, that, that's a bit of a transition for me, but it's, it's a great transition to be more front and center, helping clients actually buy and sell their businesses. And the book is really aimed to help people, small business owners or managers of smaller companies, you know, think through those issues. I mean, when should I start, you know, thinking about an exit, you know, whether I'm working for a startup or, you know, starting up my own business or working for a small or a large company or owning a company, you you know, eventually you're going to need to sell the company, whether you're marketing the shares, if, if you're public or whether you're transitioning the business to your children if you own it, or to employees, or trying to find a buyer, eventually that company must be sold somewhere, or it needs to be liquidated. And I I think what I've seen already at Transworld, a lot of business owners are feeling to themselves, well, okay, I could liquidate, move to Florida, but this business is worth something. I'd rather sell it, and whatever the price is, I'd rather get some money uh, rather than none. I've also seen business, uh, business fatigue, what I call owner fatigue. You know, for the mid-sized companies, I think at some, at some point the owners and the boards simply get tired of going through multiple business cycles of um, crashes and booms, whether it's, uh, you know, the dot-com crash or today's coronavirus closings or issues or just normal recessions. I think people just get fatigued and finally get ready to just, you know, move on, try something different, retire. But, you know, what I always counsel people and what the book says is start thinking about that exit, you know, long before you actually need the exit. In other words, if you need water, dig the well long before your current source of water runs dry. And look at who the logical buyers and sellers might be uh, one digital company I've been counseling for a long time works with Microsoft and uh, 
works with a lot of platforms of bigger companies. They're a pretty small digital firm, but you know, we put together our list of potential buyers long ago. You know, private equity firms they've worked with, hedge funds, big you know digital companies, uh, all of whom you know part these business partners are potential buyers. Whatever you're doing, whether it's retail or uh, business to business, or of course digital or a service company, uh, you know, there's a list of potential buyers that immediately kind of come to mind. Well, the nice thing about Transworld is that we not only help market the company through, you know, internal data, you know, proprietary databases and websites that cater to the buying and selling of businesses, but uh, a lot of small business owners are not very sophisticated about what their options may be, and we can quickly help them uh, not only price the business, but understand what some of those options may be, what some of the hurdles may be, what some of the opportunities could be. And, you know, a, a lot of people are either too negative or are looking at their pricing and their opportunities through the rose-colored glasses. And uh, it's a lot like buying and selling a home. We have an emotional attachment to our home, most of us, and are not really seeing very clearly you know, what the curb appeal may really be and, uh, you know, what some of the, you know, nice things about the home and what some of the negative things, you know, may really be and what some of our choices could be. Right. So you, it sounds a little bit uh, like your philosophy, maybe like mine, where I would argue that any business owner has to have an exit planning strategy among their top 10 items. Now, if you're starting up, I would imagine that would be near the bottom. But as you develop your business model and you adapt to the market environment, that tends to move up or down depending on where you are in the stage of your career. Do you agree with that philosophy or do you have a different point of view? Well, I, I think that that probably is the norm in the process that people start to think of it more towards the end of their business life cycle. But the, the book makes the argument that you should be thinking about it very early on. Day one. And day one. And that actually your plan for growth should actually involve exiting the business. I Absolutely. mean, how you actually look at growing the business and what your choices may be should be dictated not only <clears throat> by what the market is and growing it, but how eventually you plan to liquidate it. Are you going to be big enough to be uh, to go public? You know, do you have kids in the family who might be interested in taking it over, employees, or are you just going to have to go take it out to the broader world? Really, from day one, you should be thinking about how you're going to maximize the value of this business. I, I guess the argument in the book is that value creation process about you know, how I'm marketing my wares uh, is eventually going to shift to a, a value preservation mentality. Okay, I've got this business, it's worth X dollars, how do I leave? Yeah, absolutely. And the motivation for it, as I say, could be quite different. I, I've helped sell many clients who were publicly held where management finally, management saw, hey, you know what? Uh, th this business is probably never gonna be as worth as much today, as much you know, in the future as it is today now is the right time to sell. And that's when they sold out to another company. And they had a, a logical list of buyers in their industry 
or in similar industries who are, who are interested in expansion or ramping up their industry who, who could step in and buy the company at a great price. And, and there may be other reasons, personal reasons, health reasons is a big one. Yep. Um, you know, also, uh, as I say, just fatigue, or maybe the industry has just changed and you simply, you know what, you're just not that interested in working in this business the way it's changed. I mean, the motivation, you know, can just be um, all over the place and they're all valid. Maybe your values have changed as an owner or a manager. And I think we, I think that happens, of course, to all of us as uh, we get older. Maybe you're a lot more interested in animal rescue than you are in uh, or, or sailing uh, around the Great Lakes than you are in running your widgets business. And you know that's a valid reason for moving on from that business. Absolutely. So one question before I ask you to kind of summarize what we may have missed. Uh, what's the biggest challenge you say? I think you kind of summarized it throughout the interview here, but is there anything that you might consider as the biggest challenge today as we go forward? I think the biggest challenge is still for any business owner or manager uh, figuring, out, <clears throat> figuring out what their options are. And that's where uh, good advisors, and the book makes this point, uh, great advisors are invaluable. Uh, I know this sounds a little self-interested, but don't stint your advisors, whether it's lawyers, uh, PR crisis counselors, IR people, investment bankers, business brokers. Your advisors are going to help, are either going to A, save you a lot of money because they know where to go, what to do, you know, to make the good choices and they're going to help make you a lot of money because they know what the options are and have the connections uh, that you don't because you've been spending your lifetime working on building your business. So, the, and the book makes a huge point of this. Yeah. Um, I've seen some real, I experienced, in fact, some real horror stories where otherwise fairly sophisticated company managers or, or owners made some very poor choices in their uh, advisors and it set back their business plans uh, by months or years, or ultimately cost them a lot of money. So totally agree. Totally big, agree. Big, big lesson there. Uh, I, I know it can hard. It can seem hard for all of us, whether we're get, hiring a realtor to sell our home, or hiring a, a business broker or a lawyer to work uh, on um, selling our business. But the best choice you could make is hiring a good, trusted advisor. Absolutely. Um, just, you know, look, it's, it's just like getting a good personal um, uh, wealth advisor, you know, your financial services advisor, whether it's Charles Schwab or Fidelity or, right. you know, whoever it may be, uh, you know, get, get somebody you really trust. Absolutely. So, Steve, you pretty much summarized everything I wanted to talk about. Was there anything that we may not have covered that you want to talk about real quick before we end? You know, not really. You, you've covered a lot, but uh, I think uh, the big, my big advice would be just figure out your options and, uh, you know, be very comfortable with it. My experience working with CEOs and business owners is that um, if, if you're asking them to do something they're not just plain comfortable with, uh, that's a very difficult uphill sale. And, um, I mean, ultimately, the business owner and manager needs to get comfortable with uh, – uh, their advisors and, and uh, their plan of action. 
or, or they're probably just not going to do it or they're not going to do a very good job. So it goes back to your point, which I think is uh, made earlier on that uh, relationships are key and uh, transparency is key and that builds trust, which enhances everything from personal brand to uh, corporate valuation. So, so where can our audience go to learn more about you? Obviously, they can go to the Transworld site. Where else can they go? Well, look at LinkedIn and uh, I'll connect with uh, anyone who sends me an interest and uh, look at Amazon Kindle and uh, Skim Brand Wins. And hopefully uh, that'll be a good starter to my philosophy. And uh, if people are comfortable with it, um, then we're a good fit. Absolutely. And I can highly recommend reading his book because it's very uh, an easy read and uh, the nuggets that you can get from uh, his experiences over the many years he's been in business will be invaluable to you going forward. So, Steve, thank you very much. All right. Thank you. So long, Steve. The Building Better Business podcast is the best place to learn how to take your business to the next level. It's no longer enough to earn good profits. You need to develop a network of connections as well as use all types of marketing to your advantage that will put you over the edge. Hosted by me, Steve Eschbach, a financial executive with decades of experience in dealing with businesses and business people, we'll learn how this all comes together. Join me and my expert guests as we delve into the many facets of owning the business and how to become a good, caring business owner. Listen how making a difference in your community can attract all sorts of clientele, which in turn will build you a better business.